Psalm 38, Psalm 38, the title ascribes this Psalm to David, and it's a Psalm of remembrance. Um, in the absence, you know, again, we don't have any reason to dispute that. It is a Psalm of David. Um, so we study it under the assumption that David wrote it, although there's really no reason to adamantly insist on that either. Um, we discuss, uh, I know we discussed Psalm 17 earlier in the study, earlier as we went through these, and we identified various sins that David may have committed, but he is best known. We've talked about it four or five times now for the sin with Bathsheba and the sins that he committed trying to cover it up. So given that specific occasion of David's suffering, I is not given in Psalm 38, therefore not knowledgeable, we're, we're not really knowledgeable about it, but we are in no position to really be judgmental or try to figure it out, or um, we don't know what sin David is talking about here. That being said, sin is sin. Sin is sin. So we don't need to know what specific sin that that brings the occasion to David to write this psalm. We don't know why David wrote the psalm. We don't need to know why. So without having conclusive knowledge of a backstory, um, I want to say it this way. This psalm describes the temporal ill effects of sin on the quality of life and David's response to those effects. It's a good synopsis so to speak. And so as we look at this and we think about this, um, the effects that David describes are a combination of physical uh, misery, enmity, anxiety, guilt. They're all ordinary, predictable products of sin. David had a consuming love for God, and it was described in many ways. But remember Psalm 42, uh, looking back at some of the Psalms that we've read and done, Psalm 42 says, as the deer pants for the flowing stream, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the God, for God, um, for the living God. David knew as clearly as anyone who ever lived that his sins put him at odds with God. He knew that sin divided him from God who he adored and in whom he delighted as passionately as a human could. So, Sin sets up an intolerable, dynamic tension within David. Um, so as we look at this, we're gonna we're gonna read this and go through it. But but to open things up, I want to go to Romans chapter seven, and it's something that Blake actually has done the study on uh, for us with us. But it's been a while since we've heard. Uh, some of that. I do want to just read this. We're not going to go into a lot of detail on it, uh, but Romans chapter 7 is going to give us some insight into this conversation here. If my pages would stick together. Give me just a moment. Let's try to turn these pages. Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 14. It says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do not allow, for that which I do, I allow not. 
for what I would that I do not, or that do I not, but what I hate that I do, or that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent to be unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more that I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. And we read that part out of Romans chapter 7, and you can turn to it in any version. Um, just to clear up one little part of that, I want to open that up in the CSV and read that to you real quickly as well. So as we open that up here in the CSV, it says this. It says, uh, verse 15, For I do not understand what I am doing, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know nothing, or I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good with me is with me, but there is no ability to do it. Uh, I just wanted to read it so that we kind of got that mindset. We all know what it says. Um, but let's go before the Lord in prayer before we continue here this morning. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to come and share your gospel today. I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So it's we reminisce with that. Uh, I read it because, as I said, it's reminiscent of that that Paul describes in Romans 7. Paul even goes so far as to describe the condition in this way. Verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? What a wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Now, what a curious way to describe Paul's condition. The body of this death. What body is Paul referring to? He's referring to the mortal body. He was yearning to be released from his mortal body by death, the fleshly state. He did not want to be subject to the temptations of this life anymore. Um, there's a commentary that says, you know, there seems to be here an allusion to an ancient custom of tyrants who bound a dead body to a living man and obliged him to carry it about until the, until the contagion or till the con contagion 
of the putrid mass took away his life. In other words, um, you're carrying this body until the diseases of the dead body uh, would overtake the living body. That is a punishment. Paul was living and breathing civil war. He was a battle back and forth, kind of like the, the, the frustrations we see in our country today. Paul is referring to a problem here where he's got this battle going on inside of him. Well, in Psalm 38, David actually seems that way too. David seems to feel that there is actually something going on in him. O Lord, rebuke me not in thy wrath, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. For thine arrows stick fast in me, and thy hand presseth me sore. There is no soundness in my flesh because of thine anger, neither is there any rest in my bones because of my sin. For mine iniquities are gone over mine head. As a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and are corrupt because of my foolishness. I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long. For my loins are filled with loathsome disease. And there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and sore broken. I have roared by reason of the disquietness of my heart. Lord, all my desire is before thee and my groaning is not hidden from thee. My heart panteth, my strength faileth me. As for the light of mine eyes, it is also gone from me. My lovers and my friends stand aloof from my sore and my kinsmen stand afar off. They also that seek after my life lay snares for me and they that seek my hurt speak mischievous things and imagine deceits all the day long. But I as a deaf man heard not, and I was a, as a dumb man that openeth not his mouth. Thus I was as a man that heareth not, and in, though, and in whose mouth are no reproofs. For in thee, O Lord, I do hope. Thou wilt hear, O Lord my God. For I said, Hear me, lest otherwise they should rejoice over me. When my foot slippeth, they magnify themselves against me. For I am ready to halt, and my sorrow is continually before me. For I will declare mine iniquity, I will be sorry for my sin, but mine enemies are lively and they are strong, and they that hate me wrongfully are multiplied. They also that render good for evil are mine adversaries, because I follow the thing that is good. Forsake me not, O Lord, O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. That is Psalm 38. That is the word of God and the words of David. David actually asked God to forgo the punishment that he fully knows he deserves. David straight up asked God, how about we skip this one? God, I know I deserve punishment, but let's skip this one. So are we even understanding what David is asking? In verses three and four, he connects his complaint with his own sin. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a burden. They are too heavy for me. Now the word for in verse four is in the original language. It means because. So the word for means because. It says, so basically because my iniquities 
have overtaken you. David is testifying here saying, I am in this place because of my sin. Is David so audacious or audacious, so audacious, audacious that he dares to suggest that he be excused from accountability for his sin? Is he daring to ask God to forgive him of his misdeeds? If discipline is from the Lord and born of love, David welcomed discipline as a favor from God's hand, most likely. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father, the son in whom he delights. Now, why didn't David, a man after God's own heart, actively seek to embrace discipline, knowing it would be to his benefit and not his detriment? Well, in fact, in another psalm, Psalm 7, he seems to be doing just that. Psalm 7, verses 3 through 5, O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. It's not the only time that David seems to make this request. Psalm 6, verses 1 and 2, he seems to cry out, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. Uh, in Psalm 51, he seems to go further asking for his sins to be removed. And he begins his agonized plea by saying, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Despite all of these considerations to the opposite here, the sense that this is native to most humans, that the sinner must be held accountable and reap the appropriate consequences for their sin, David seeks to be excused from the normal and natural consequences of his sin. It's the first thing he says. Rebuke me not in thy wrath, chasten me not in thy displeasure. You know, David is seeking to be excused from these sins. You know, if I were to go out into the parking lot where you're parked and back into your car, um, Either I or my insurance company is going to be responsible for the damage that I just pulled on your car. If it's my fault, if I backed into your car, I'm now responsible or the insurance company won to pay for the damage to you, to your car, to anything that I have damaged. I would be the one who did what I should not. I'm the one guilty. I have to pay. So what payment did David want to avoid? Physical illness, a ruined relationship, enemies and their taunting, the eternity of hell. Um, to look for the answer to the question, we almost need to compare instances where David sought relief from his sins. So what's different in Psalm 38, Psalm 6, Psalm 7, and Psalm 51? In Psalm 7, it seems to be that he is saying, if I deserve retribution from the hand of someone, 
that I have harmed, let me suffer that which is right, so that the injured person may have that which is rightly due him. Uh, in other instances, it seems to be related to sins that do not involve harm to others, but are sins directly against God, as though God himself is the injured victim of David's crime, which in a sense, God is the victim. But is David's sin made up Christ's trip to Golgotha necessary? It's not evident that David's plea for salvation or everlasting life, but for deliverance from the immediate thing that afflicted him. Psalm 38 does not address the eternal aspect of sin, uh, of the sin result, but uh, only those injurious effects suffered in the mortal state are covered here. But David, in David's lifetime, it is said that David's sins were taken away. Uh, verse 13 of 2 Samuel 12, regarding the sins with Bathsheba and Uriah, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. According to the prophet Nathan, the Lord had put away David's sin. Put it away, meaning taken away. Meaning he had removed his sin, the same sense of removal that we get from baptism. So basically, if not, in what sense were David's sins taken away? Uh, is there any other sense that your sin can be removed from you? No. Uh, sins were dealt with ceremonially through the offering of blood or a, a red heifer or you know whatever it might be. But that only made the sinner ceremonially clean. The result that he or she became eligible to enter the congregation, meaning the temple, meaning they could worship, they could go in and worship. David's sin concerning Bathsheba and Uriah were taken away or put away. So what is the meaning of that? Because it might actually shed light on what Psalm 38 is saying. No sin was ever taken away from the one who committed them, but by the power of redemption. And redemption only resides in the blood of Christ. So not Adam's, not Abraham's, not David's. So what could David do to remove his sin? Nothing. He could do nothing. There's nothing he could do that would remove his sin. The high priest did all that there was to do on the annual day of atonement. He applied the blood of a bull for his own sins and then the sins of his family in the most holy place, applying the blood of the scapegoat to the people. In David's day, that is all that was available. But in this annual ritual, that didn't remove the sins. Hebrews 10, 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Only the blood of Christ has the power to take away sin. Hebrews 9, 13 and 14, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? We know that today we might seek and obtain absolution on terms of the gospel. But David was making such a request here. In, in verse 17 of Psalm 51, David states the terms or the principle under which he places his confidence and relief is being sought. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. 
oh God, you will not despise. David showed in this and many of the Psalms that he, uh, his spirit was broken, his heart was contrite. So were the sins committed before Christ rolled forward? No. Um, that's what we get taught as children. And some passages in Hebrews and other places seem to explain that through a perspective, but it strains some of the passages such as Leviticus uh, that says sins are forgiven. If the visualization works best for us, you know, think truly about the whole thing. Just hear me out on this. It's beyond the scope of tonight's study, but I will share with you that you can consider um, whether you agree or not. But Christ's blood, I believe, did reach forward as well as backward, but I do believe that Christ's blood was for the forward. Um, again, timeline. Timeline. So thinking about that, you know, I do believe that any of those that believed, uh, at which time the ones that believed in God, Christ's blood also would have washed their sins and been the atoning sacrifice for those who were already atoned. Um, David, Abraham, Moses would be those. God is not limited in the time dimension, but however we visualize it, whether sins roll forward, blood rolls backwards, there is no explanation and there is no expiation from sin. Verse 2 apparently describes what David sees as the judgments of God upon him for which he seeks relief. Arrows which lodge within his very flesh and the hand of God administering punishment or chastisement. Second uh, Samuel 12, 10 through 13. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your house out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. He shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do the thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also, or the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. But the actions of God in this passage can be described figuratively as arrows released by God. God saying, I'm going to do this. These things are going to happen. And the hand of God heavy upon David for this passage makes it plain that the things David would suffer in course of his life were God's actions and not merely, merely incidental. Um, remember the first three friends of Job, and we'll continue that conversation tonight, but Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar, each from a different part of the country, shared the common belief that all physical suffering was punishment for sin. You know, their their problem is one of sequitur. It's uh, sin produces suffering. Therefore, suffering is evidence of sin. And it, what is lacking is the formulation in the exclusive word only. One can say sin causes suffering, but one cannot say only sin causes suffering. You hear me out. You can say sin causes suffering, but you cannot say only sin causes suffering. But they inferred Job's suffering could only be caused by the sin 
that he committed. The problem with that is the interferences. They rest upon false premises. Experience teaches us that interferences, even when they appear to be rock solid, sometimes don't match. Firmly entrenched in that belief, Job's friends believed that not or that one not only could but must infer uh, you know or not interferences, inferences. I can't even read what I'm written here. The problem is inferences. They rest upon false premises. So it's inferred here that sin had been committed. For to them, the evidence seemed indisputable. They believe sin had been committed because to them, evidence was sin is the evidence of a wrongdoing. You know, the evidence didn't lie. But on the premise on which their interpretation of the evidence lied, it did. The premise was a lie. Their inference rested not on the evidence, but on their preconceived but false notion of how God speaks and interacts. Verses 3 through 10 and verse 17, there is a connection between sin and physical suffering. Um, Job didn't withstand, you know, verses 3 through 10 here in Psalm 38 and verse 17. Um, verse 17, I am ready to halt and my sorrow is continually before me. There is this connection between sin and physical suffering. Job's case, notwithstanding, physical suffering can and often is a consequence of sin. But it is relevant not just in David's day, but in ours. Um, sexual transmitted diseases, drug addictions, uh, the things of that nature come with consequences and there is punishment for your sin. Um, verses 11 to 12 and verse 16, there's a connection between sin relationships and it's an obvious connection that requires little expl explanation. Um, and the thing is, those things that are there have to be resolved. You know, there are sins that lie only between you and God. The sins between me and God lie only between me and God. Um, they have to be resolved between you and the one against whom you sinned or the relationship is infected. Similar sins, or similarly, sins between you and others are destructive in that relationship as well. Jesus taught us that in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 23 and 24, if you are offering your gift at the altar and, there, and remember there that your brother has something against you, leave your gift. Go find your brother, make right with your brother, be reconciled to your brother, and then come offer the gift. This applies when we are, or at least thought to be, the offending person. Jesus also taught the same principle applies when another person sins against you. Matthew 18, 15 through 17, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. That every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, 
let him be with let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So this is a really hard conversation that's happening here, but it's easier to talk about third parties um, who are sympathetic to the injury done to us by another person's sin. Jesus cared so much about relationships that he showed it to be more urgent than bringing our gift to the altar. Jesus is saying, if you have a sin with your brother, if you need to address this, you need to take care of that before you do anything. Before anything else happens, go fix it. Jesus cared about relationships and showed that it was more urgent to bring your gift or more urgent than bringing your gift to the altar. If you are bringing a gift and remember something against your brother or that your brother has against you, leave the gift and go. Take care of the problem. First, now hear me, first, go and be reconciled to your brother. Reconciled how? Jesus doesn't say it's not here in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not necessarily here. But what what do we do? What must we do to be reconciled? Well, we need to go, you know, maybe at least go on the mission of reconciliation. Uh, it's more urgent than the gift. So in other words, go and reconcile with your brother. Verses 19 and 20, beyond the friend-to-friend relationship is what we are talking about here. There is a connection between sin and the enemy. Sin certainly has the potential to give rise to enemies. On its face, sin against another may actually make an enemy of someone and God may rise um, enemies up against us because of our sin. The book of Judges is full of that uh, nationally, possibly individually, as in David's life. Another thing that sin does is sin is on our conscience and it can also make enemies seem to appear where there are none. Psalm or uh, Proverbs 28 1. I like to use this verse. I, I like to use this verse when people ask me why I don't run. But in all reality, Proverbs 28 1. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. You know, it seems to be part of the design of us, our innate design, the way we were created. The design in us is that we have this unreasoning terror arise and this uneasy conscience of the sinner, which does not allow the sinner to be at ease, free from the fear of discovery and consequence. But with practice, the sharp pangs of, of conscience can become blunt. David's sin with Bathsheba, especially that concerning Uriah, illustrate how David and we can smother our conscience. We can push it to the side to a point. That was not David's case in Psalm 38. David's conscience was fully aware. He was fully functioning. In Psalm 55, David's thoughts seemed to be uh, going from one aspect to another, bouncing between complaints about his enemies, expressions of anguish at the betrayal of a trusted friend, calls for relief, and praises to God for his favors. You know, that psalm is similar in regard to abrupt switches between thoughts. But maybe maybe our personal prayers are similar. You know, what I get from this is that our prayers don't have to be organized or polished. 
We don't have to organize or polish our prayers. Where does this, this meandering valley of thought lead David? How does his problem get resolved and his cries become answered? Uh, in pieces and parts, they ricochet between his sufferings and his higher thoughts. The nuggets are found in four locations. Psalm 38, 9, O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. So basically what happens here, Psalm uh, 38, David bottoms out. David reaches that despair point. His inability to express or fix his problem with sin um, has an effect on him. Because what we see here is it's as if he's saying in absolute honesty and surrender, it's beyond me, Lord. Um, I simply lay it all before you. There's this full assurance that I know and that you know all of me. The cause of it and the remedy of it is you. Uh, Psalm 38, 15, But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. Um, Psalm 38, 18, I confess my iniquity. I'm sorry for my sin. Psalm 38, 20 to 22, those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. In these statements, these interjections, these um, conversations where we see the, the, um, the scripture David makes these statements, supplies the answer that he seeks in the midst of them, and it all has to do getting right with do with getting right with God. We have to get right with God. Are you right with God today? Have you found a peace today? Have you found God at work today? Because what we see here is truly a, a, a wonderful lesson. But the effect of sin in our life is so real. So I encourage you today, if you do not know him, get to know him. We're going to take a moment and just pray and lift this up before the Lord before we go any farther. Father God, we just thank you as we close this out today. Lord, I pray that we will be holy and just before you. Lord, our, our sins, which are many, as we wrap this up today, I pray that you would just touch each heart, that they would find peace in you. I pray for each one that would hear my voice tonight, that they would be touched by your spirit. I pray that your spirit would come over each one that needs to feel a touch from you. God, that we would not only have your spirit come alive in us, but Lord, that we would continue to live the way you would have us to live. Father, we just lift it up before you tonight. We ask that you would just touch each one. Allow us to forgive ourselves as you have forgiven us.
Lord, go with us. Lead us. Go before us, Lord. Lead us, direct us, continue to show us your Father, let us be like David. Let us be like Christ. Let us be like the one who you have called on that you have words for. God, we thank you. We praise you. We give you the glory forever and ever. Amen. Again, we're going to take a break. Uh, we will return with more uh, here on the morning service. So hold tight. We'll be back with communion. And again, we want to thank you for tuning in for our services here on our um, podcast page. Thank you for listening and hope you had a blessed time with us. You can get more information on Newland Christian Church at newlandchristianchurch.com or go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash newlandchristianchurch. And until next week, we hope you have a blessed week in the Lord.